This is Perspectives, the show where a look at our many differences often show us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley, and our guest in studio is one of the first female reporters at the Wall Street Journal. She's Joanne Lublin, and in her career, and we'll let her tell you more about this, she's faced a number of battles. She became the deputy bureau chief of the journal's most important London bureau. She was the first time it was run by a woman. She has a great book. It's called Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. It's available in stores now. She and dozens of other women who have successfully navigated the corporate battlefield share their leadership lessons. And we want to say hello and welcome to Joanne Lublin. Thanks for coming and being with us. Thanks, Sue. For having me. So did you get Secretary Clinton to uh, write for your book, or is she in the next edition? Well, the book is focused only on corporate executives, so she didn't qualify. Ah, but speaking of the glass ceiling and how close she came to shattering it, uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, what were your thoughts on perhaps why that did not happen? Well, my thoughts were, even though she got more of the popular vote than the man who won, that she was not the right woman to be elected president in 2016, but it certainly is going to make it a lot easier for the right woman to get elected. So now you have uh, re- you reached out to a number of extraordinary executive women to uh, share their stories uh, in your book. Which of those perhaps was the most surprising to you or most enlightening? Well, there were dozens and dozens of surprising and enlightening stories, but I think Frankly, the most surprising story came from a woman named Diane Bryant. She today is the highest ranking woman at Intel, a major high-tech company out in California. And this is a woman who came from a household in which her mother was a battered wife. Her father was a convicted criminal. Her mother several times tried to leave what was obviously a dangerous and bad home situation and take Diane and her sister elsewhere. But her mother didn't work outside the home. And so at a very young age, Diane vowed that I will never be financially dependent on another human being. And today she's not only the highest woman in Intel, but highly compensated. So we have in this book your story and stories from more than 50 other women who have shattered the glass ceiling are at the top of the corporate ladder in the C-suite. As you asked these ladies to share their stories, was there anybody who said, no, I don't think this is the time for me to do this, or was everyone all in on first request? Well, it's funny because I ended up interviewing 52 women, of whom nearly two-thirds are experienced public company chief executives. And I've often been asked, so did you pick one for every week of the year? Well, no. The goal was to try and get to 50, but I had to ask about 70 to 75 women. And some of those who turned me down were simply too busy, um, especially those who are current chief executives. And others didn't want to be pigeonholed as a female fill in the blank. They wanted to be taken on face value for whatever it is that they're doing for a living. Share with our audience a little bit of your story being a I hate to use the word pioneer, but it's the one that came to mind, Joanne, at the at the Wall Street Journal, leading in a time when sometimes men looked at women as not being capable leaders. Uh, right. how, how was your struggle to get to where you are today? Well, it kind of became the basis for the book. Uh, I did a first-person essay for a Wall Street Journal blog back in 2008 called Journal Women. doesn't exist anymore. 
but it was called Remember the Barriers. And I tried to educate our then 20-something daughter about what it had been like in the early 70s when I joined the workforce, when I entered the journalism profession, and describe some of the things that were really eye-opening experiences to me because I had never seen anything like that as a college student. There is one major corporation in America that's struggling right now in the news and the headlines, losing advertisers for one particular talent because there are rampant reports of sexual harassment in the workplace. How prevalent was that in your early career and... Do you see a time in the in our history when that is not going to be an issue for women in the workplace? Well, it was very prevalent early in my career, and it remains very prevalent in every woman I know's career today. Um, there was just a study released about two weeks ago by Red Book Magazine, whose readers are mostly young women, and they found that the prevalence of women experiencing sexual harassment is actually higher than when they first did a survey about this in the 70s. It was over 90% had been harassed on the job. And I think there will come a day when this is not something that is acceptable behavior. And it will come not just because brave women start to stand up and stand up in greater numbers, as finally did happen at Fox, but also because brave men will say, I will not stand for this kind of behavior by anyone. And so it's the notion of the responsibility has to be a shared one. Before we began the interview, you told me that your son suggested that the woman in the cover of your book carry an iPhone. Talk to us about the uh, balance of family and professional career. Was it easy for you, difficult for you? And what did you learn from the women you interviewed? Well, it was very difficult for me. And I actually wrote a a first-person piece at one point about the decision that I had made to come back to work um, after giving birth to our son, who himself now has two children. And it was paired with another piece, both of these on the op-ed page, by a colleague who had had a baby around the very same time who had chosen to stop work. And what happened was I then went off for the very first time since he had been born. He was about seven months old for a long weekend away with my husband came back the following Monday, and there was an entire page of letters to the editor excruciating me for having made this choice to come back to work. And on my desk was a folder of letters that were too nasty to publish, which were saying things like, you know, your son is lucky that you went back to work because you're an unfit mother. And the worst letters came from women. You anticipated my question. I was going to say most of these letters must have been for men, right? No, they were not. What impact did that have on you? Well, I got a splitting headache, as I think anyone in that position would. I left work early that day. I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to keep working, because if this is right, what it's going to be like to be a working mom, because again, he's seven months old at this point, I don't know if I can make this happen. And I didn't have really role models to look to at the Wall Street Journal. And in fact, when I declared my pregnancy, there were five women at the journal who declared their pregnancy the same week, of whom two, myself and another, said we were coming back to work. The other one came back and didn't stay. So of those five who all early that year had, in 1979, said that they were expecting, I was the only one who came back. I left work early. I took the bus home, and I stopped at a friend's house who was a school teacher who had children of her own. And I started crying. I just said, I can't do it. And she's like, 
people, do you like your job? Are you satisfied professionally? Are you going to be happier staying at home or happier working? I said, I love my job. I was a very committed journalist. I remain so today. And then she said, well, then don't let this stop you. You know, you're better than these people who wrote these letters. So I went back to work the next day. (laughs) And who was the awful person who put all that hate mail on your desk? Well, they decided, uh, you know, I never found out who put the folder on my desk, but I found out that the letters in that folder, and there were about 30 of them, were simply the ones that were, you know, had too many four-letter words or were just way too nasty uh, to publish. Fast forward, and I talk about this in the book, my son, after his second child is born, decided to take paternity leave because his wife had gotten pregnant in the first year at a new job, and her employer gave no paid maternity leave unless you'd been there 12 months. And their child, their son, was born 11 months after she got there. So she took a month's vacation, and then her company was nice enough to give her a a month paid leave. But she had to go back to work after two months. She wanted to take off four months. My son, on the other hand, had all kinds of calm time because of his job. Plus, they had a paternity leave policy. No one in his office, he works for a state agency, had ever taken paternity leave. So he took it. And I talk about how he reacted to that and how the public reacted to that. Um, And this, again, is not ancient history. His son's three years old. And, of course, that is the primary reason that you have kids, I'm told, is to have grandkids where you can love and spoil and spoil some more and then give them back to their parents. Well, that's very funny you should mention that because we were babysitting these two kids last night while his <laughs> both kids' parents went down to the bar for a drink, and we got one to bed, the five-year-old, but the three-year-old was running around with no clothes on below his waist when his parents walked in the door, <laughs> and so the expression on their face was priceless. And I said, uh, well, his grandfather just took him to the bathroom, and he won't stand still to get his pajamas back on. <laughs> <laughs> That's called a stall. So you said, Joanne, that you did not have any female role models or mentors uh, in your early career at the Wall Street Journal. Who were your role models and mentors? I take it they were male. And what did you learn from them? How did you have to manage them? Well, I don't think I did a very good job of managing my male mentors. Um, I got the promotion that you described earlier to be the initially the news editor and then the deputy bureau chief in the London Bureau, which made that bureau the first bureau run by women because it had a female bureau chief. She herself had become the very first woman to be a bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal in Boston before moving to London. But I got that promotion simply by filling out an internal questionnaire in which they asked people about uh, what languages they spoke. Subsequently, after serving in the, the London Bureau, moving back to New York, I did turn to a former bureau chief, a guy who'd been my boss in Chicago, to be kind of a mentor uh, because I wanted to become a bureau chief and I had raised my hand actually to be the bureau chief in Atlanta and I had been turned down. Uh, They picked a a woman, frankly, who was better qualified than I was, but I went and had lunch with him to get advice from him as to, you know, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What are my chances of still becoming a bureau chief? How should I go about this differently? Um, He had some good advice, but I did not ultimately become a bureau chief. How are you at mentoring female career professionals in in their quest to be as successful or even more successful than you've been in these decades that you've been with the paper? Well, one of the things I do do is informally 
advise and counsel any colleague who asks for it, as well as friends outside of the paper. There's nothing formal about this. But the thing I like to say is I just wish I had had this book when I was earlier in my career, because I think it would have been really, really helpful. The other thing that is really amazing is these women who chose to cooperate for the book are not just women who have earned it, but these are women who are returning it. And they're serving not just as mentors, which is important, but more importantly, they're serving as sponsors. A mentor is somebody who will guide you, advise you, give you informal advice. But a sponsor is someone who's willing to put their personal capital, their professional reputation on the line and vouch for you. And they're doing that not because they like you. It's because you've established a, a relationship, a professional bond, and a, there's a give and take in which you've brought something to the party. Plus, they think of you as a rising star that they want to hitch their wagon to as well. And there's some great stories in the book uh, about some women who've had some very powerful sponsors. Do a little name dropping of some of the women who agreed to be interviewed for the book. Sure. Well, Mary Barra, who's the General Motors CEO, is one of the 52 women. She was my last of the 52 interviews I did. Um, there's also Ginny Rometty, who's the CEO of IBM. There's also uh, the first CEO of a major financial institution, um, Beth Mooney, and she is still the only woman CEO of a major financial institution. She runs Key Corp. Ellen Coleman, the former CEO of DuPont, is in there. Irene uh, Rosenfeld, the CEO of Mondelez, who I wrote a story about in today's Wall Street Journal, uh, was also interviewed for the book. In the book, write about blooming where you were planted. What do you mean by that, and how does one do so? It's a very good chapter and a really good piece of advice, and it comes from another woman who became a very prominent CEO, Andrea Jung, who ultimately becomes the very first woman CEO of Avon, a company that throughout its history has catered overwhelmingly to women. But until she got that job in the late 90s, they had never had a woman as CEO. That chapter, Bloom Where You're Planted, uh, is mostly focused at the outset about Andrea's days at Bloomingdale's in her early 20s, where she is a buyer and is very successful and wants to move into management. She raises her hand for her first supervisory role in a pretty, you know, status conscious area of the big department store, and she gets turned down. The CEO of the department store instead offers her the position of running their lingerie department, which was the last place in the world she wanted to take her first supervisory role. This department at that time was at the lowest level of pecking order in that store. And in fact, the department's offices was in the sub-basement right next to the subway. It had been run for years by a man who was much older than her, and there were only guys in that department. And so she asked for some time to think about this offer and then decided that this was a chance to try and tackle something she knew nothing about and where nothing could get better except better. And on her way down there the very first day, she happened to remember a poster she'd seen in the human resources office. And it was an image of a plant with a flower coming out of it, out of the pot. And it said, bloom where you're planted. And she did. Not too long ago, we passed by the pay equity date, the number of days a woman has to work in order to earn as much as her male counterparts do. 
uh, clearly we're not doing as well as we would like to in that department. When you talk to and interview female executives, what guidance do they share about being paid what they deserve, being paid what they're worth and what they should earn? And that is such an issue that is so current with us today. Um, Google has just been sued by the federal government because of their pay inequities, because they pay men differently than they pay women. And like the sexual harassment chapter, I thought when I reported this book that it would be more of a historical treatise, but instead it's a contemporary treatise. Uh, And that issue is alive and well, unfortunately, in our society. A number of these women had to fight battles to get paid fairly, but a number of these women in turn then fought battles on behalf of other women who were less senior than them in the organization. And I think the best advice that any one of those women gave, and there are leadership lessons at the end of each core chapter, is the notion of going into negotiations with a velvet glove, which is the notion that you've done your homework, you understand what this position is worth that you're either going to get promoted into or hired for. You've done information seeking within that company. You've compared, if you can, to other positions within that company as well as networked outside the company to find out what their competitors are paying for that position. But at the same time, you understand that the person on the other side of the table has limitations In other words, you empathize and identify with where they're coming from. So you've got the velvet niceness on the outside, but you've got that fist inside the glove, which is your knowledge and your ability and willingness to walk away if you don't get what you deserve. Joanne, who do you want to read your book? I want women at all stages of their careers to read this book because it's not just for women starting out. It's for women who are midway through their careers, as well as women who are trying to finally make it into the senior ranks. And frankly, that's where the biggest problem still lies in terms of representation of women in corporate America. We do great getting hired out of college pretty well at first rung supervisory positions, not so bad at mid-management, but then it's like everything falls off a cliff and the representation of women at senior levels of management while getting better is still pitifully scant and scarce. But I'm very encouraged by the fact that now as more women get into senior roles, they indeed are viewing part of their responsibilities as executive women to give back and to make it possible for younger and less senior women to follow in their footsteps. Outstanding. How do your readers get in touch with you? Well, I think tweeting me is the best possibility. And my handle is at Joanne Lublin. Excellent. The book is Earning It. Hard-won lessons from trailblazing women at the top of the business world. The author is Joanne Lublin, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and management news editor at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks. You're welcome. We're talking to comedian and actor Dion Cole. He is going to be doing some stand-up here in Atlanta at the Atlanta Comedy Theater July 14th, 15th and 16th. Where do you find the time, Dion, to get out on the road in front of live audiences? You are so busy for television shows. 
Yeah, it's crazy right now. But, you know, I still, I, I mean, I'm a comic first and foremost. And I still have to come out, touch the people. And, you know, I'm very comfortable on stage. And, you know, I'm comfortable doing everything else. But, you know, comedy is where it all started for me. So anytime I can squeeze in a weekend, I'm there. We missed you for a bit of time on Blackish, where Charlie had to go away. I can't tell you how excited I was to see you come back. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I had to go do my other show, Angie Tribeca on TBS. Rashida Jones and Steve Carell. I had to go over there and film some episodes, so I had to step away for a second and then return. But no worries, because Wanda Sykes filled in for you while you were away, and now you're doing a game show that she's producing. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Big Wanda Sykes. Uh, we're doing a show called Face Value on BET. Me, uh, Tiffany Haddish, will uh, be out. And uh, the show is just about people getting money to judge people and profile people. <laughs> that's about it. I mean, people do it anyway. So, you know, we turn it into a game show. That's kind of fun. And so, I mean, I mean, it's actually it's a lot of fun. But, you know, it's just, it's just um, you know, yeah, it's called Face Values. It's a great show, though. Very, very cool concept. All right. And we'll see that on BET in September. And then last but not least, you're in the Blackish spinoff, College-ish. I guess I said that right. You're a professor on the show. Yes, I play Professor Telfy. Um, I work there at night. I have a night class, and I work at uh, Stevens Alito on Blackish in the daytime. So, yeah, I do teach a night class there, and uh, excited for everyone to see this. Shout out to Yara, who won an award last night for Young Stars uh, Rising, a Young Star Award on BET. And, um, yeah, we're just going to keep it grinding and keep it going, you know. Yeah, she's taking that gap year to work on the show, and you're on the show, and then she's going to be going to Harvard with uh, the former president's daughter, right? Yeah, absolutely. She leaves and goes to Harvard, and uh, she will be there, I mean, getting her. If you never talk to her, please try to. That is, like, one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, like right now, she has so much history. She knows so much. She's so bright. I mean, like really bright, unbelievable. So I'm, I'm excited for her to, for her to go to school and knock it out and do double duty like that. It's great. So um, we're all excited for her. I want you to tell me just a little bit about Charlie's character. On Blackish, he's, you're kind of comic relief and you say strange things but then in the pilot for college-ish your course was it was dead on and made perfect marketing sense yeah but it still was charlie-ish <laughs> no pun intended but he 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 still did it in a charlie fashion you know because you know he teaches a midnight class full of prostitutes and recovering methamphetamine addicts so <laughs> It's still Charlie, you know, but you know, his 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 class his uh, his sessions that he teach, they you know they kind of have some purpose to them that you know you can come in and learn something. It might not go exactly the way that the way he's teaching it, but you'll get something out of it. When did you know that you had this incredible ability to steal scenes? <laughs> I, I don't know. I have no idea when I'm stealing them if I'm not if I am I mean I can't do what I'm doing without the terrific guidance of Kenya Barris and Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ross and also Peter McKenzie and Jeff Meacham 
uh, the guys that's in the office, you know, love them to death. I mean, we play off of each other so well, and Charlie wouldn't exist if it wasn't for those guys. So, you know, it's just it's just an even exchange of energy that we bounce off each other. We're looking forward to seeing you here in Atlanta at the Atlanta Comedy Theater, July 14th, 15th, and 16th. And, of course, we can find you all over the TV, Blackish when it's back in the fall, College-ish, which is going to be on Freeform later this year. Of course, you're on the TBS series Angie Tribeca. And come September on BET, Wanda Sykes is producing the game show Face Value. Dion Cole, you are a very busy man. You are a very funny man. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. And shout out to all my Team Coco fans and all my Team Coco people. And still watch Conan as well. Thank you very much. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.